welcome everyone to another issue of Four Guys in a Comic. Today we've got a very special interview for you. We've got Steve Orlando on the line. Steve, how's it going? It's going real well, gentlemen. How are you? Mm, great. Thanks for asking. Yeah, no complaints. So for the people out there, the people out there that don't know who you are, what you're writing right now, uh, why don't you give us a little information about yourself? Sure. Uh, well, I'm writing uh, things you might have seen. Uh, I'm writing Midnighter at DC Comics right now. I just did a Shazam one-shot uh, for Justice League during Dark Side War, where we got to give Shazam all new strange powers, all new, all different powers in the Justice League. Uh, and I'm, I'm part of the team on Batman and Robin Eternal, which is really right now, uh, introducing a new iconic, hopefully, villain uh, into, the, into the Bat universe. And uh, in September last year, I did a graphic novel called Virgil and Image uh, Comics, which was IGN, uh, IGN's number one graphic novel of last year, top ten for GQ and Vulture and a bunch of other things. Uh, so it's been it's been an exciting year. Yeah, it has been exciting. You've got a lot of stuff on your belt just this last year. Yeah, it's been it's been a busy one. Yeah. So I'm kind of been kind of going back through your bio of some of the stuff that you did. So. If I understand this correctly, one of the first things you did was FemForce. Um, is that correct? Uh, yeah, I did that. Um, you know, it's an interesting cautionary tale. People ask, you know, how did you get into comics? And, you know, I've always, as, you know, we all go through this period where, um, you know, we're just desperate to get published. Because getting, you know, it's sort of like a self-perpetuating cycle, getting published. You need to be published to get published. Yeah. So when I was quite younger, like when I was probably, this is, FemForce was probably when I was 14, so uh, 16 years ago. Wow. And, um, you know, I contacted them and I just wanted to get my name in a comic. So I said I'd do backup stories for them, um, you know, for the fee of no dollars. <laughs> uh, and that's how those things happened. I, I did two stories for them which I really like, you know, at the time I thought were very inventive, but really just rip-offs of the authority with Femforce characters. And they put them out. I, I believe, to my, to my knowledge, I did a story about She-Cat, uh, a relation, a superhero relationship drama about She-Cat. And then I did a story uh, about, I think her name was Tara, who was like kind of like their version of uh, Shaun of the She-Devil meets Giant Man. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they published those, and... Um, you know, they, they, they're still out there. If you want to see, you know, where you can go uh, in 16 years, you can, uh, it, it's hopefully a big thing, stuff I'm doing now, the stuff I did back then. Yeah, so it was what does it, uh, Natural Habitat and Just Another Couple. So you mentioned the authority, and of course, the biggest thing you're writing right now, one of the biggest comics of last year, uh, was Midnighter. In terms of Midnighter, how is it to write a character as uh, as like extreme in every sense as him. Oh, I mean, I, I think it's a character that I've had sort of a strong passion for since I was, you know, obviously I was reading it already back then. Uh, so for a long, large portion of my life. And I think Midnighter being quote unquote extreme is, as now that he's in the DCU, I think it's, it's an even bigger opportunity than it was before. You know, when, when I first started the book, people said, yeah, well, how are you going to do this character that is from the Wildstorm U? And so, and, and it's so violent in the DCU uh, versus in the Wildstorm you know, And I, I think character as bold as he is, uh, you know, a character as, as sort of bombastic as he is, in a world where, in, in, in a setting like the DCU where, you know, if criminals know, you know, Batman has one rule and Green Lantern is going to, you know, put him in a giant 
green wicker basket, uh, it a character like Midnighter really gives you an opportunity to write someone that is sort of totemic in power. You know, like when you, you see him around the corner, uh, it means something different because you know you really stepped into a world that previously never didn't exist in the DCU. So, uh, how do I approach doing character that extreme? I think it it it's an exciting opportunity to tell a different type of story in the DCU. And more so, it, 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 to make it uh, not about him punching his fist through people's brains and things like that, but to make it about the way he lives in life, his life in general. You know, he doesn't have a secret identity. Uh, he he's midnighter all the time, whether he's you know going to IKEA or, or fighting terrorists or whatnot. So I I tried to take the way he fights and put that into his, the way he lives his life, which, as I said, it's bold, it's bombastic. There's nothing held back. And I think people really responded to that. You know, it's the first time uh, a DC or Marvel branded book has had a gay male character in the lead. I mean, did have a wild service series before when there was a separate imprint, but it's the first time the DCU or the Marvel U. And I think it's the perfect character for that, you know, because it's going to be divisive. It's going to be, it's going to get reactions. But Midnighter himself is someone who doesn't give a damn. And he's going to be him and he's going to do him no matter what. So I think it was a great way to sort of bring that to the forefront and give the community, give those readers uh, a really powerful symbol to get behind uh, for them. And, uh, you know, for anyone who likes books where somebody could kill with a T-bone tape. <laughs> yeah, and it seems people really are responding well to that. Uh, everyone who's read the book that I know can't say anything, but that it's amazing. Well, I like those people. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Steve, I mean, when you uh, first learned that you were going to be taking on this title and this character, what were some things that you did to prepare yourself to uh, write this story art? Well, you know, it's uh, there's a lot of... You know, some writers don't do a lot of prep work, you know, Stephen King famously just starts writing and doesn't know where the story ends um, until he gets there. But I think that that's kind of a, kind of a minefield. Uh, but when it comes to when it comes to any character, not just Midnighter, but that includes Midnighter, when you're taking this on, I feel like you've got to know what's been done and you've got to know where people have gone. So, I mean, I was already familiar with Midnighter, but I went back and not only read all of his New 52 appearances, but all of his appearances to sort of see what this holistic take on the character was. You know, like if you're going to write, especially a book like Midnighter where people aren't super familiar with the character, you really got to know, you got to form this sort of core idea of how he deals with things, how he problem solves, how he reacts. And you do that by not just researching him in books, but also researching maybe the type of people that you find uh, could be a blueprint for him, the type of people that could inspire him. You know, people say, who, you know, Ramon and Midnighter. The answer is, I realized soon after, there are two main ones. It's like for his wit, he kind of, I kind of write him as if he's Janine Garofalo. And for his sort of persona, I was reading um, Anthony Burgess, who wrote Clockwork Orange, also did a biography of Christopher Marlowe, who's a gay poet and spy from the Shakespearean era. And as I read this sort of, cold open to the novel where he's sort of in a bar, you know, it's dingy because it's the 1500s and people don't have plumbing or whatever. And, uh, you know, they're drinking and it's very macho. And then he sees someone that he likes and he just, like reaches his hand over the, and he doesn't care. He's Christopher Marlowe and he reaches his hand over and he holds this dude's hand and, uh, you know, one second he's doing that and within 
words uh, and seconds of story time, he's like grabbing people by the nose and like throwing them through tables because they're because they're because they're busting his balls about it. So like when I read this, I was like, this is midnight. So the answer is like you you just try to find to build this foundation uh, for the character, and that comes from not only reading um, and and researching their their in-story appearances, but sort of trying to find your lightning rods, your, uh, your the, the way that you can ground the character in real life people. Uh, and, you know, I'm sort of a strange guy, so when it comes to Midnighter, he's a strange guy too, and the inspirations are equally esoteric. Now, for Steve, for those of our listeners that are unfamiliar and haven't read Midnighter, like, can you give us maybe a little synopsis of rundown of the storyline and what's happening, what the characters are a little bit? Well, Midnighter is a guy, you know, he, uh, he was abducted as a child, and genetically and biologically uh, re-engineered. He was rebuilt from the ground up to win fights. Uh, you know, his bones are harder and lighter than a human. He can heal faster than human, but not like Wolverine. We're talking, you know, a week instead of months and days instead of weeks, but not regrowing the skin on his arm in five minutes while he's mm-hmm. having a cigar. Um, and, and, and But his biggest, his, and he has limited super speed, but again, not like the Flash, like for like a second. Uh, you know, he can hit you before you see him. Mm-hmm. And most of all, he has a fight during his brain that lets him run any type of fight millions and millions of times in an instant before the first punch is even thrown. So his big power is that he knows how to hit you. And that doesn't mean he can always win a fight because if it's someone like Superman, it doesn't matter how many times uh, he's going to hit him because his, he's still invulnerable and Midnighter is still relatively human. Uh, you know, he's human in the way that Captain America is human. He has no memory of his past. Uh, part of what makes him Midnighter was erasing all of his past. And that's how we dive into the first story arc, where he doesn't know where he fits in. You know, he's, he's at the time, he's just broken up with Apollo, who's a Superman-style character that he's been dating. But Apollo does have a child. He does have a background. A background. And so Midnighter has, um, he didn't want to screw this up, so he's lied. He's, he's made a full past for himself. But it's all a lie, you know. He he's he all he is is this fight machine, and the only name he has, Midnighter. So, in the first story arc, he is trying to decide what that means, and it's it's right in his face because the one origin file, the one bit of information about his past that was hidden from him by his creator has been stolen, along with a bunch of technology from the God Guard and the place that made him. Uh, and so he's kicking off this sort of like explosive action movie, you know, globetrotting adventure that goes to Moscow, it goes to, uh, it goes to Oakland, it goes to Boston, it goes all over the world as he tries to put a stop to all of this rampant bad technology. Because for him, Midnighter is a guy where all he wants to do is make sure that no one has to go through what he went through. Uh, he's a very community-driven, person-to-person character. He wants to make change he can see, and then that means that you know when you're in a when you're in a place and you feel like no one else can hear you, no one else will listen to you. He's always the one that is going to hear you. He's always going to take the time to to listen to your story and find out, identify who has to get hit in the face, and then go do it. Uh, and so he is in that way a unique force in the DC. Like I said, like everybody knows he's Midnighter. He's people see the jacket and they see the cowl. And they think that he's uh, some type of version of Batman, but in many ways, I find him to be uh, the complete opposite. You know, there's no pathos in Midnighter. He doesn't mourn his past. Uh, he loves his job. It's just that his job is horrifying. And, you know, Batman wants to be an urban legend. 
Uh, Midnighter doesn't want to be a legend at all uh, or a myth. He wants to be a certainty. And I think it's a huge difference. Uh, you know, people uh, wonder about the Bat of Gotham, uh, but Midnighter wants everyone to know, no matter where they are, that if they step out of the line, he's going to be there right behind them. And so I think his, his approach is totally unique. Uh, he's unrelenting, but he's relatable because, like anyone, he's trying to find out how to rectify his past as his present. He's trying to find out where he fits in the world. And, you know, he's a superhero, so his relationship and emotional struggles come with laser gun and energy sword, but they're still the type of things that we deal with. And I think it's so people connect to the book, because we have on one page, you know, you know, kicking someone into a fighter plane and watching them explode, but then he's trying to figure out, like, you know, like how he can, how he can be around normal people and, like, finding out about whiskey with his best friend. It is this super version of the things we deal in our normal work-life balance, uh, writ large in the superhero world, and I think that's why people connect with Midnighter because even though he is this super fight machine, in many ways he's the realest guy you'll ever meet when it comes to comics. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I I feel like the better parts of the book have been his interactions with uh, the different characters in the universe, uh, especially his partners. You know, seeing how how they can ground him, sort of as opposed to when he's in the in the action. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about, and a lot of our fans uh, are really curious too, is you, Tom King, and Tim Seeley have been sort of having these uh, collision courses with Midnighter and Dick Grayson. Uh, and they've been a lot of fun to read. I think they're, it's some of my favorite character interaction going on in any comic now. Uh, what's, that, what's it like writing, you know, two amazing characters working together. Well, I mean, I love, I love the frenemy ship between Midnighter and Grayson. I think that uh, Grayson relates to Midnighter just enough like that and that he feels they have common experience at the same time. Um, he's not Bruce, and so he can be a little more real with them. And Midnighter, on the other hand, thinks that Grayson is hilarious. You know, uh, he, he thinks that all of these rules and the sort of uptightness that he sees in Grayson is adorable. And he likes to rib him and he likes to get a reaction out of him. And I think that's really fun to write because Midnight is one of those few guys that just sees Grayson as Grayson. He doesn't see him as Robin. He doesn't see him as just this, this protege of Batman. And I think that's why they slowly go from being enemies to, to frenemies to hopefully eventually friends. Or at least having a mutual respect. Because, again, like, Midnighter's a guy who doesn't buy into the dogma of the DCU. So he doesn't care if, if, if Grayson, you know, was, was taught by arguably, you know, the world's greatest detective. Uh, he thinks Grayson is a good guy for Grayson. Um, and I think their friendship is something, as it evolves, that is, you know, you've seen it's quippy and all these things, and they do work really well together. And it's important, too, because Grayson is um, securing a sexuality and there's never a moment you see when they're, when they're in their interactions where he gets freaked out hanging out with a gay man. And so in addition to the fact that every time they hang out, it's kind of like, you know, the best version of the weapon in the DC, in the DC universe, uh, I think it's great, too, because 20 years ago, you would have had this moment, uh, you know, where Grayson is like, whoa, man, like, slow down, and, and we're in a different point now, and, and, and this doesn't have to be an issue anymore. And so... It's fun because I think their relationship is really unique. Uh, they're both very secure in who they are, and that means that they can relax around each other. It means they can rib on each other. 
while uh, going on these, again, high action adventures that you only get when you have the world's greatest fighting machine and the world's greatest gymnast in the same spot. So I got a question for you. It's going to be a little bit more on the off topic. You're a writer. So if you could collaborate with any artist of any time period, live or dead, who would it be? Well, that's easy. It would be Qbert. It would be Joe Qbert. And mm-hmm. sadly, I, I just missed my window. But I think that Joe's one of those guys that had a style that's almost impossible to mimic, and it's totally unique. You know, you look at a guy who's super influential, like Neil Adams, and like you know, I would say like a huge, a large report of comic artists. You can trace their, you can trace the DNA of their work back to Neil Adams. Uh, and Joe's the guy that influenced many, many artists, and and sort of nurture them through the Kubert school, but at the same time, his style is so fresh, his style is so unique, and even in the stuff he did into his 80s, uh, still vibrant and, and, and unlike anything else in the stand. Uh, you know, you go back and look at his Starman covers, his Hawkman covers, I think he's easily the best Hawkman artist that's ever lived uh, and ever will. Um, yeah, there's no question. I would love to do a book with Joe War Hero. It's too bad that uh, he's already passed on. It's super cool, though, man. I mean, I like a lot of his um, his kids' works and stuff, too. You know, the Kubert family is just great. Well, it's interesting, you know, that, yeah, because Adam and Andy, despite being Joe's kids, kind of, due to the times, pushed their style in a way that sort of mimicked Jim Lee, mm-hmm. um, who began as a guy who was pushing a style that mimicked, that mimicked John Byrne. So... Like, it is very interesting to me. And you all grow past the things. That's, that's not to say that those guys are clones. I would never say that. But uh, you can, it's fun to trace. I don't know. I've been, I go to a lot of shows, and I've, I talk to a lot of creators. And I think tracing the the sort of creative DNA of influences back is very interesting. You know, I mean, and it's not just artists. It's myself. You know, I, I'm a huge, a huge fan of people like Warren Ellis, who... Uh, have to be huge fans based on the style of people like Philip K. Dick. Uh, and and going back even further, like I, I read a ton of like Philip Jose Farmer, um, Russ Manning, like other, you know, sci-fi people going way back. Uh, and, and even things like uh, the first, well, arguably the first sci-fi novel ever, uh, Across the Zodiac by Percy Gregg from the 1800s. I just think it's an interesting topic to dig into, and we're kind of like off topic now because you just asked who I'd want to work with. But it's always so fun to see how people evolve and what they take and how they grow from where they start into like where they are now. I mean, look at Travis Charis now, you know, versus 20 years ago. Um, look at Olivier Coipel now versus when he drew more like Travis Charis uh, 20, 15 years ago. I just think it's a, the more you dig into it, the more fascinating it gets. Okay. Well, then let's uh, let's flip it forward a little bit. Where do you see yourself in ten to fifteen years? Well, hopefully, uh, you know, at least not living in the same apartment. You know, in ten to fifteen years, hopefully, I am still working and, and still sort of guiding the characters in the work for hire sense that have influenced me. Uh, you know. At the same time, I would love to be able to have a have a bigger draw and do more greater on work. Um, I, it's sort of like I can't even imagine right now that I've spent the past year working at DC and you know work with these characters that are iconic and sort of like the foundation of my own youth. And so, um, 
I would love and hopefully will continue to give that to people and, and, and sort of introduce these characters to characters I love, the more obscure characters even, and show people why I love them uh, going into the future. But I, I, at the same time, hopefully will, I'll be able to use it as a launch pad for my creator on work uh, and make it something that's viable and make it something that's livable and, uh, you know, continue to push. Actually, you know, hopefully by then it won't even be an issue with things like queer representation and, and, and diversity in 15 years. Do I think that that's going to happen? I'm not sure, but it would be great. But the point is, until then, I'm going through there. I hope I can, can continue to push it further. I can continue to bring light and shed light on new people's struggles. And at the same time, hopefully in 15 years, to be honest, I have a chance to send the elevator back down and bring some new and amazing people with me. Actually, bouncing off of that a little bit, I was just kind of curious, are there any restrictions um, that are placed on you with what you can and cannot write? Or there's like a list of rules or things that have been done already or haven't been done already? Um, how does that work within, within the comic book industry? Do, well, I mean, do you mean, are you talking at what company? At, I mean, the, the only restrictions that, I mean, there's no restrictions on creator own. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are common sense restrictions. Mm -hmm. um, that you should know, you know, yes, if, if, yes. if a company is six books about flying whales, you shouldn't do a seven. <laughs> but in time, like, no one will stop you. You know, you'll bring ruin to yourself, but that, that is what it is. Yeah. And, you know, and, and honestly, at, at UCC, uh, and company I work in general, so I'm also doing some stuff at Boom right now with Power Rangers, uh, I haven't seen any, I, the restrictions are, again, they're there, but they're common sense restrictions, mm. you know, like, what you can do based on the rating of the book. You know, yeah. the, what I can do in Snyder is different than what I can do in Shazam, because mm -hmm. one is Ollie, uh, and one is, uh, one is T+. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, like, there are, much like what you can do in PG-13 versus what you can do in R and so on, uh, the rules are, 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 are the right there, and, uh, but they're not necessarily, like, story-based. Mm -hmm. uh, it's all about um, you know, doing the things that are best for the character and finding the core of all these characters. And I think as long as you stay true to that, um, you don't really run into any problems. Like, you know, uh, obviously if you're writing Batman, you can't like have him go on a like throat cutting spree, for example. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and like, you know, you've got to know walking in the door that that's not a Batman story to do. Like his enemies, obviously, uh, totally different things. So, I think that it is a, it's a relatively free place to work. And then when you're in creator-owned, it, it's very, very free. Uh, as a matter of fact, sometimes it's so free, you, have, you definitely have, like, enough, you know, you're free to jump off the cliff, like I said, with maybe you're not following the industry too much. Mm -hmm. Or enough. And you don't really see, like, oh, like, I really want to do a Jack Kirby take on Christian mythology, right? But when I look at the industry right now, it's maybe not the best time. Uh, maybe we are needing more superhero like cosmic books right now. So it's something I look at and I say, okay, well maybe I'll do this, and like maybe that's what I'm doing in 15 years, when people will know me well enough to to be like, well, Jack Kirby Christianity, that sounds kind of weird, but Steve is, and we know Steve, and so we trust Steve, and so we're going to buy it. It's like I do it right now. People would just say, who is this crackpot? Um, you know, unfollow on Twitter. So I try to, is, you know, the restrictions are really like knowing what's going to work best for you when it comes to creator owned it. Within the company, it's about knowing the characters and knowing who those characters are and proposing things that are in line with what they're about. Oh, well, very cool. That's going to answer a lot of questions that we've been receiving from poor guys in a comic in regards to that topic. So thank you for that. Sure.
So, Steve, being a uh, voice in the comic LGBT community, I mean, how do you feel like that is going now with your writing? How do you feel taking over and representing that? I mean, I feel, well, I'm not, you know, I feel good about it, but I'm, I'm just one guy. There needs to be more than just me. It's an honor that I can be there and that I could do this at midnight or that I could, especially in the case of Virgil, I get so many notes from people about how, how, they, how it's moved them and how it's brought light, light to what's going on. Uh, you know, in the in the real world uh, versions uh, of those characters, or for the real world versions of those characters, um, you know, I'm relatively opinionated guy, and I knew going in, you know, people there's as many different opinions in the queer community as there are in any other community. So, with like Midnight or being the one book, it, it's always going to be impossible uh, to. Uh, do something that represents everyone. And I don't feel that pressure because it's, it's like being Sisyphus, you know, like it's, it's just not, it's just not possible. So the pressure to me and, and what I feel to do is that to take the characters that I do represent and make sure that they're well-researched, make sure that they're passionate, make sure that they're layered so that the only, that there are no characters in any of my books, but the only thing you know about them is that they're queer because that's not real life. And so, and then of course the books keep going, they appear in different books, characters appear in different books, and you get, you work towards, you chip away at that diamond, the bird and the diamond, chipping away towards, um, you know, the goal that is, that, that is uh, representation and so, and, and diversity. So it's great that I'm doing that. I'm super excited uh, to continue to do it and find new places for these, for these characters and faces. Um, but at the same time, uh, there's got to be more. There's got to be more than just me. There's got to be more than just me at, at, at work for higher places. Uh, there's got to be more than just me and create our own. And there is more than just me right now. You know, there's there's a ton of amazing queer creators out there. Um, and I just want to see it continue to go. I want to see uh, people continue to climb the ladder and, and put their own experience in these books. Um, and I think that that's going to happen. You know, you go to I go to, I went to FlameCon last year, uh, which was the first. Uh, gay focus convention on the East Coast, and so many young creators there uh, doing amazing things that I was on panels with and, and talking to. And <clears throat> I guess it's all just it, it's exciting that I can be part of it. And uh, I hope we can all continue to push it forward uh, going into the future. Very cool. Now you mentioned Virgil, and that seems like it was a very uh, personal piece for you. Uh, would you want to talk about your inspirations for that? And the book is basically very indicative of our times right now, too. Well, I mean, it's 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 not personal in that you know there's no character in there that's that's me because uh, because it, it, it's about the situation for the queer community in Jamaica. But where it's personal is the general idea that I felt, like you said, like it, it, it's a, it's appropriate as pertinent for right now. I felt that it was time for a, a queer revenge. Book. I felt that it was time for queer noir, as myself and JD called it, and that was very personal because I I sat here and I walked out of Django Unchained. This is like three or four years ago now, when I break came out, and I had this moment where I was like, "Damn it! Like this movie was this movie was weak. Like you know, it, it's not a it's not a divisive or disruptive statement to say racism is bad." Uh, Anyone who disagrees with that is not human and, 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 you know, not worth anyone's time. 
if if this was a bold movie, it would have had Django be gay. And I was like, man, I wish someone would do that. And I said, well, what am I waiting for? I'm going to do it. And so in that way, it is personal. But I, you know, I don't want to say that as a white half Jewish guy from central New York, that my experiences are anywhere near what people are going here in Jamaica. And so that is where what I talked about before, the, the research, the interaction with people, the time to understand the weight of what we do as creators comes into play for Virgil. And again, that experience for me was very personal. The struggles and the challenges are not. Um, but the meeting these people and, and, and finding more and delving into what they found there is very emotional. And that creates the anger that, that drives Virgil, uh, you know, and that's the anger that drives uh, Grindhouse. It's the anger that drives uh, exploitation fiction. Uh, and, and that's what Virgil is about. It's about these stories that need to be told. And it's about uh, sort of a violent catharsis that, uh, you know, maybe is a little unsettling at first. When you read the back of the book, this person... One gentleman commented to me somewhere, he said, you know, I read this book, and at first uh, it was a little, uh, it was violent and crazy and unsettling, and I didn't know what I thought about it, but then later it came back to me and realized it was it was almost cathartic. And to me, that's the experience of Virgil, and it's, a, and it's something that I think we all need in times where we're oppressed, in times where we're subjugated, where we're treated like second-class citizens, or in the case of places like Jamaica, subhuman, uh, where like the, the overwhelming majority of gay men in Jamaica are literally living in storm drains, homeless. We've got anger, and we need a way to let that out healthily. So for all of our different struggles. And so that's what I, in my mind, Virgil is about, and that's what uh, exploitation is about. It's about releasing that. It's about communicating that. But it's about doing it in a way that is exciting. You know, you don't have to know any of that to enjoy Virgil. You just have to know you want to see a guy fighting to protect what's his, fighting to protect what he cares about, uh, and doing and doing his damnedest to, to avenge the things that he's lost. And that's something we can all relate to. Uh, and again, to me, that's that's what action cinema, that's what genre fiction can do. Taking this world, you know, and, and that we can relate to, and whittling it down to this emotional beat. Protecting what we, protecting the things we love that everyone can identify with, and that's how you build bridges. And yeah, like we're doing it through punching, blowing things up. Uh, but if there was a byline in my career, uh, building bridges by punching things and blowing things up would probably be it. This may sound very random, but everything you just said sort of reminds me of what Grant Morrison says about his uh, view on stuff that he writes, which I hope you take as a compliment because it's meant to be one. Uh, I just thought I'd throw I that do. out there. Hey, I, 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 in my whole life, I could have do the amount of experience enhancing drugs that Grant does in like a day. So, uh, <laughs> um, no, but I do say thank you. I take it as a compliment. Flex Mattel is my favorite book I've ever written. So, uh, definitely. Very cool. Very cool. So, I mean, your stuff is starting to build momentum now. You're starting to be recognized. I think Midnighter was written about in the LA Times. And then you mentioned earlier that Virgil uh, received an award recently. How does it feel to finally have your uh, work recognized and uh, people are taking a liking to it in, uh, in a quick sense? I mean, yeah. I mean, of course, of course it feels great. I can't be falsely modest about that. You know, comics is something I've been trying to do for more than half my life. So to finally be able to do things and have people notice them, uh, it's great. 
but all of those things as well. It's about giving. My, it's about it's about power, and it's about finding a way to to, to strengthen the signal. So. When I do something that I feel is vitally important, like Virgil and Midnighter, things that are firsts for the community, things that in, in many ways readers have been waiting for for 30, 40, 50 years, their whole lives in some cases. Because when Midnighter came out, like, make no mistake, um, it was a super exciting book, and everybody, everybody said, whoa, like, you're gonna, he kicked cheap on stake through someone's head. But also, I got people that were saying, like, you know, they would message me on Twitter or Facebook and say, I, I've been waiting my whole life for this type of book. I've been waiting my whole life to see me in a book. And so the awards and the, and all those things, I, I can't thank everyone enough for them. But it's also because it's also amazing because it helps spread the signal. You know, every time Virgil gets an award, maybe more people see that. Maybe more people feel like they've been represented. Maybe more people find out what's going on in Jamaica. And to me, that's an even better dividend. Uh, it, it allows me... To continue to do what I think is important work, and I hope it's important work, uh, and it allows the books to continue to do what I think is their work, which is spreading their message, uh, connecting with people, and and to me, those are the biggest payoffs of all those things. It's always great to hear that a writer is so invested in what he's writing. So I was kind of curious. Um, so what kind of things do you enjoy reading? Well, as I said, I'm a big. Uh, I mean, I am a big Warren and Brand guy. Uh, you know, when it comes to comics. I I actually really like things like uh, Ryan Ferrier's Dave uh, from IDW. I really like the work of, of Dave Walker. I like Matt Rosenberg's work. Um, I like Genevieve Valentine's work. I'm super excited for her on Xena, which just got announced. I think it's an amazing book. Uh, she's perfect for it. I read a lot of sort of political theory. Uh, I also read a lot of folklore stuff and a lot of sort of like like Vladimir Probst morphology for folktale, which is a book, if you haven't read it, because you're probably not as nerdy as me or have a life, uh, <laughs> that sort of flesh all these popular folktales and treats them as if they have uh, distinct parts like, like living organisms. So I read a lot of sort of like folklore theory. I read a lot of, read a lot of comics. I take in a lot of film, too, uh, you know, like in many ways. I'm always writing in my mind like a Sergio Leone movie, Midnighters, a Sergio Leone superhero book. Uh, you know, so I find, I try to take in a lot because that's how you, I was talking about this when I was in Miami Comic Con last week, like you must be like a voracious consumer of fiction because, and anything that you take in is useful. Uh, things that work, that do, uh, you know, works that don't do something well are useful, obviously, because you get to see how they achieve that thing. And works that do things poorly are also useful because you can see where they went wrong and see how you could do it better. Um, or even, you know, let, let's not let's not bring ego into it. Just that you could do it better, but you could certainly see how it was done poorly and try to avoid that. So that is uh, the answer. Is I read a ton. I watch a ton, and, you know, in between, I'm feverishly trying to make comments. Mm-hmm. Uh, once or twice, I leave the house and have some wine and food and remember my previous day job, um, but that's pretty much my life. Yeah. That's cool. I have to ask you, though, so what are, what are some of your favorite folklore things that you enjoy reading? My favorite folklore, I love Slavic folklore. It is one of the things I studied in college, so mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm a little biased. Um, having said that, I really love the illustrations of Yvonne Belieben, mm-hmm. Victor Vesnetsov, and with that, uh, I love the Book of Veles. I love Vasilis Bukrasnaya, Vasilis the Beautiful. I find the 
similarities and yet differences between Slavic and, and, and Norse mythology very interesting. And at the same time, I kind of like studying not just when it comes to, to Russia, but in many places, the sort of like push and pull as, as, as places adopted Christianity and yet didn't necessarily give up their pagan religion as much as you thought they did mm-hmm. uh, in the way that Perun and Russia... Uh, basically, they kept worshiping him, but just slapped the name St. Elijah on it so that people wouldn't get angry. You know, I just find those things very interesting. And I'm also a huge, like, grammar and linguistic nerd. And I also really like uh, Republic of Georgia and, and that sort of, their sort of cultural traditions. They have their own martial tradition mm-hmm. uh, that is uh, almost never depicted in comics. So it's both Credoli. Uh, someday I will do a book about that, uh, and I'll be very excited about it. Yeah, I was just I was just going to ask you that. Are you going to incorporate some of that into something soon? <laughs> no, I mean I would love to. I need to find the right the, the right and very patient artist to have to figure out a way to do it. But I'm sure it'll happen. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's the one thing you'd have to come up with the right uh, artist to help uh, put that to get story together for you. It's uh, especially because it's something not as many people do. You know, like Jeff Johnson was was uh, on Way of the Rat at Crossgen was like famously very good at that type of thing because he was a martial arts practitioner. But it's hard to find uh, someone who does Credoli. Needless to say, it's hard to find someone who does Credoli and also draws comics. But it's not to say it's impossible, though. Like, uh, a good example, uh, my, my friend uh, Mike Kingston, this book, Headlock, which is a, uh, uh, a, rest- a drama about the wrestling industry. And I think the book benefits so much because the artist of it is a Samoan wrestler from New Zealand. And so when it comes to actual depiction of things in it, I think it's, he does, his name's Michael, uh, he does an amazing job uh, because he's not just drawn these things before he's done them. He has muscle memory for them, I think, that goes through on the page. If I were to do a Credoli book, I would, I don't know how I would find it, but that would be ideal, and I'm going to keep trying to find a way to make it happen. <laughs> All right, so if we have any artists out there listening, <laughs> you, can submit, you can submit to Steve Orlando at, uh, on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that you like a lot of the comic stuff. Do you have a uh, pool list right now currently? Uh, right now, I buy stuff um, usually in trade, uh, mainly because from data, you know, the, the, much like watching comic book movies, I saw Ron Mars tweet when Avengers 2 came out. The only people that haven't seen Avengers 2 uh, are the people that actually make comics, and like that is very true. <laughs> um, I, if I have a pull list, I, I did it for, well, I did it for since I was a kid. Um, but it was this year when I started working much more full time in comics, where I realized I was waiting. I, I, my, my monthly books were piling up. So I had two or three months anyway, and I had to have like a dedicated weekend where I read them all. So I finally made the switch this year. I do a lot of things digitally, uh, on comicsology. I do mm-hmm. follow, God damned if I follow all the DC books. Um, but I also really love Squirrel Girl. I really love uh, Jason Aaron's Doctor Strange. You know, I read a bunch of different things. And then the things that I can't pick up digitally due to time, not due to space, because mm-hmm. there's in space, I try to pick up and trade. Yeah. Um, you know, I just got Sam and Overture, which is sitting in my desk right now. I'm Catching Up in the Woods uh, by James Tynan. I think those are the next two things on my docket. I have to say that's probably a common theme that we uh, hear from when we're talking with writers is the more you write, the less time you have to read. <laughs> well, yeah, you got you to build it in. You got to make, you got to build the time in because it is, 
you know, despite the fact that you work from home, it's a full-time job, yeah. you know? So it is very easy to get distracted, and, and, and apps that disconnect you from the Internet for periods of time and things are very useful. Um, but, yeah, I definitely try to to, to, to keep up on these things, but it, it usually comes in spurts where I voraciously buy and read things, and then I go back into my cave to continue to make uh, to continue making comics. Well, I got to ask: When you're not in your cave making those comics, what does Sto- Steve Orlando do for fun when he's out of the house? Well, I'm still, uh, you know, I used to be uh, a Scotch and spirits advisor, so I mean, my and my and my partner is still in college, so uh, with a different schedule than me. So our like our our vacations don't really exist. What we do do is, is do a lot of like interesting eating and things like that. So. Uh, Steve Orlando drinks usually uh, Central European Georgian wine, uh, <laughs> Lebanese wine, and goes uh, and goes out for like obnoxious tasting courses uh, where he's going to wear an overcoat, and that's usually what I do. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> now I have a random question, but do you guys? I mean, there's so many books going on at DC. Do you get like a memo? This happened this month, just so you're caught up with continuity, or? Is that sort of something you do with like the a certain group of writers who are all writing titles that can relate to yours? Well, I mean, it's you know you you generally can get the DC books uh, in PDFs and things uh, to keep you up to date. And you know, if you want something, you just ask for it. And you know, like we we don't despite the fact that we're all sort of like weird ogres, you know, as, as never leaving our houses and like wondering what the sun is. Um, you know, we actually talk a fair amount. So, you know, you talk about me, Tim, and Tom, I'm great. Or, you know, we, I, I'm in between sending the pictures of, like, dumb beer cans and things. Like, we do talk about comics pretty frequently. Uh, so, so you books that are connected to yours, but, like, either you can find out very easily what's going on or you know just because, you know, you, you've got people you have to talk to stay sane, and they're usually those people. Well, in terms of, like, Batman and Robin Eternal, did you guys just sit down and or email each other and like, it seems really difficult to collaborate with. There's eight of you on it writing. Uh, what was I really like? thought you said Batman robbing the cradle. Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, no, we said, we sat down, we sat down before it all started well in advance and, uh, and when the whole thing out, you know, though I bet the book kind of works like a TV show in that it is, you know, we, we got together we talked about the goals for the book and uh, sat down with James and Scott and then we blocked all they got together. And then once we plotted out all the beats, we sort of decided who was going to do what issues. And that's how you see the individual people, uh, you know, week to week and month to month, but we all work together. And I think that that is pretty unique. Uh, you know, the writer's room is a pretty unique thing and it's sort of exciting to finally see it all coming together now. Well, Red, do you have anything else to ask? Well, I was actually just curious with Midnighter. Uh, how far out do we have it planned out? How 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 long are we going to have Midnighter for? Uh, well, we definitely have a plan. Uh, well, you've seen it solicited up through I think issue eleven, so we're definitely good through there. Uh, which, as, as many people in Internet Comics not, does have a follow on the cover uh, for everyone who I told I had a plan. I really do. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, so I'm very excited for him to come back in issue 11. And, you know, beyond that, I, you know, the, I think that, uh, the, the door is always open. It, it really depends on, on reader support. If the, 
book is very well received. It's not the strongest seller, and so ultimately, I'm not, I want to do it as long as uh, sort of a reader support allows. If it's a character I love, I'm never going to truly leave him behind. Uh, and so the answer is we're going to do it as long as the demand uh, allows it. And even then, he's going to have a pretty firm place in the DCU if I have anything to say about it. I like to hear that. Awesome. Well, for everybody out there listening, pick up an issue of Midnighter and give it a try. You're going to like it. Keep this book going, guys, please. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's not have another Omega Men on our hands. Oh, God, no. <laughs> that, will, that will be missed. But, yeah, um, Steve, uh, I think we're going to wrap this up. It was great talking to you. Uh, a, a complete pleasure on our end. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. I mean, and I would happily come back. So uh, let's, let's make it happen again. Yeah, I'd definitely like to have you come back. Maybe the next time you can bring uh, David Messina in with you. I mean, you can uh, <laughs> have a little round round table going. Oh, I like to be a lot. He lives in Rome, so that would be some interesting timing, but we could definitely make it happen. <laughs> oh, no problem. I, 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 that would be cool. All right. Well, Steve, it's been a pleasure. Um, we'll check you next time. Also, um, if you're listening right now, be sure to check out uh, fourguysinacomic.com. Be sure to check out our Twitter. Be sure to check out our Facebook. And be sure to check out Steve Orlando and Midnighter. It's cool. All right. So we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. This has been uh, Four Guys in a Comic with uh, Steve Orlando, and we'll uh, see you next time. <laughs>